Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Gregory Robinson. And I am your co-host, Joyla Ferlano, and I am joined by Josh Isaacson, a second-year PhD graduate student in the biology department here at Western. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. And so you are presenting at the Biology Graduate Research Forum this year. You've actually already presented, is that correct? Yeah, I have. And did you, talk. Oh, you did a, sorry, an oral talk? Yes, and, uh, okay. the longer one. There's two versions. There's a lightning talk, which is very short, and then there's the longer 12-minute one, so I give the longer one. Oh, great. I don't know if you'd call it standard, maybe special. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's giving me a little too much credit, maybe. <laughs> um, and that was today? That was today, yes. Okay, and how did it go? I think it went pretty well, all in all, cool. yeah. Practiced it a decent amount. Flipped over my words here or there because I added like a slide or two, like two hours before I did it. But hey, can't complain too much. Yeah, you just got to roll with it. Stuff <laughs> happens. But you were talking about uh, what was going on in your PhD. You're in your second year now, right? Yes. Yeah, so I'm in my yeah. second year. Just ter- went into my second year. So yeah. I just brought up the sort of stuff I accomplished in my first year and like some of the cool preliminary results that I'm seeing so far. And uh, what exactly is your research? So my project studies mistranslating tRNA genes. So tRNA genes are genes that are required for the production of pretty much every protein in your body. So every single thing that makes you you requires these genes to function properly. But mutations to these genes can basically cause them to put, so the different components of proteins are called amino acids. And these tRNAs basically recognize the part of the gene that says like, put this amino acid there or put this other amino acid there. And it it recognizes it and goes, okay, great. So amino acid A is going in the right place, amino acid B is going in the right place and make sure that your, your proteins are translated correctly. But if there's mutations, sometimes that process gets mixed up. So you might have a tRNA that's supposed to put amino acid A in place, but instead it puts B in there instead. That's known as mistranslation. And it occurs fairly uncommonly in your cells, but it is a natural process. So for roughly one in every 10,000 codons, or for roughly one in every 10,000 amino acids being translated, um, one of them is going to be mistranslated. And sorry, what causes the mutation? It can be a number of different things. It could be mutagens. It could just be random errors during replication. Anything that would cause mutations to normal genes or normal DNA sequences will ca- could cause mutations here as well. And it's actually known that humans, in a recent uh, publication from one of my labs, found that humans have about 65 mutant tRNAs per person. So it's actually a really big thing that needs to be studied. But what's interesting is that even though we have single-celled models of mutant tRNAs and determining their effects, we don't actually have any multicellular models. So that was part of, that's one of the goals of my project, is to go develop a multicellular model to study mistranslating tRNAs. And you study that within humans? I actually use the fruit fly Drosophila melanogaster because it's really easy to go take some genes and just throw it into, um, and put it into the flies and see how they behave. And flies, not only do they, like, they have relatively short lifespan, so I can see how these mistranslating tRNAs affect lifespan and development, but they also, um, they have a lot of really well-known traits and there's a ton of genetic tools available. So things like disease genes. So I can actually get some flies that drive mutant Huntington protein in the eye. So like the same version of the protein that will cause Huntington's disease in humans, but drive that only in the fly eye to see how that affects neurodegeneration without actually killing the fly because it only sort of destroy their eye while leaving the rest of their body intact. So you have some really cool tools like that that allows us to study study the effects of mistranslating tRNAs in ways that just simply wouldn't work if I was to try and work with, um, like, or would be much more difficult in a mouse and it just wouldn't really be possible in human cells. Okay. I just want to take a quick step backwards mm-hmm. just to make sure I'm on the same page here. So, like, when we're talking about creating proteins, we start at, we have DNA, right? And your DNA is then transcribed, which just means it's turned into RNA, which is 
basically DNA, but can go outside of the cell and this stuff, or outside of the nucleus, pardon me. And this can be turned then into protein. But there's certain types of RNAs. Mm-hmm. So there's mRNA, which is turned into protein, and then there's other RNAs that aren't turned into protein. Exactly. And so you're talking about tRNA, so yeah. your transfer RNA. And so this essentially is like, it's kind of like the person in charge that rounds everything up and puts them in the right order and says, you know, like, you and you are going to be together. And like other people aren't. It's almost like if you if you think of like a good way to think of tRNAs would be if you had a bunch of like workers each holding a different important thing to build a house. So one of them is holding like the cement, the other one's holding bricks, maybe some of them are holding beams or nails. Okay. And then they're all in a line and they each have to put their own part in place to build the house correctly. In a specific and, order? In a specific order. Okay. But occasionally, and that's what they're supposed to do, and normally it proceeds as usual, and that house gets built perfectly. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, one of those workers will be holding the wrong thing. So instead of holding cement, maybe they're holding nails. And then okay. when they try to use their thing, when it's their turn to act, they kind of, they're not able to do their job appropriately. They put the wrong thing in place, and that can mess up how that, like the structure of the house mm-hmm. and the overall integrity of the house. So that's a good way to think about it. So it plays a, a really important role. Very, very important. Okay. If if things mistranslate too heavily, if too many workers are holding the wrong thing, cells just completely die. They're just not even they're not viable. They can't even develop or divide or anything. They just die. You got to have a good foundation, or your house falls <laughs> over. <laughs> and so working with Drosophila. So firstly, these are like your household fruit flies. Is that right? They're not. Yeah, they're pretty similar. Like when you get some. Uh, like when you just have like some rotting food in your cupboard and you're just like really angry that I'll get all these fruit flies now. Like that's basically what I'm working with. Just that, but in a lab and I just have the DNA sequences and stuff. It's not too different. And how difficult is it to work with Drosophila? It takes a little bit of practice, but it's actually a lot easier than you might expect because we have ways to knock them out so you can move them around really easily. They um, like you don't have to worry about feeding them. Like you just put them in a vial with a ton of food so you can just leave them there for weeks on end. They're not like cell culture, for example, where you have to come and chuck on them every day and really babysit them. They're really relaxed. Like they flies grow even when you don't want them to. So like they're pretty easy (laughs) to maintain, which is nice. But when you want to try and do the really small scale stuff, like do dissections or like really easy sorting, sometimes that can be, um, or some more complex sorting, sorry, that can be a bit more complicated. Yeah, that's what I was curious about. Just because they're so small, I can't imagine working with something so small like that. When you do dissections with them, it's literally called microsurgery, which makes you feel really cool. But also it means (laughs) it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so what's like a typical day in the lab for your research project then? So what I usually do is I'll come into the lab and I'll take a vial filled with flies and I'll empty it because I want flies of a very specific age. And if I just come in from like the day before, I can't tell if they those flies sort of appeared during the night, if they became adults during the night or the day before. So I really, really want to make sure I've got a precise age for my flies. So I'll empty the vials and then I might go do some molecular analyses, things like run PCRs to make sure that my constructs are still there and doing things properly. Sorry, I what's ca- a PCR? Uh, it's called polymerase chain reaction. It's a procedure that you run on DNA to basically amplify a region of interest, which you think you can then sequence to make sure that it has the correct DNA sequence that you intend, or just to see that something is in fact there or used for later downstream applications. In my case, I'm just doing verifications. So I run the PCR. If I see a band, great. That's what I hope for. If I don't see the band, then something's gone horribly wrong, which mm. has happened every now and again, which is oh, why no. I check so vigilantly. So, so you're trying to mutate like these tRNAs. And so you have some sort of vector, which is just like a bunch of foreign DNA that you're then putting into like Drosophila so that they'll have mutated tRNAs, essentially, exactly. right? That's, that's my understanding. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. And so you're doing PCR just to make sure that you still have these vectors and that they are what you want them to be. Exactly. Right? So... 
mutations can develop, and it's also possible for flies to lose this this construct, this plasmid or vector that was just brought up. And I just need to make sure it's still there because, of course, if I want to study mistranslating tRNAs, I kind of have to make sure they're still in the fly itself. Right. How do you put them in the fly? So I actually have to do that myself and with a really, really small needle, basically. <laughs> um, so I have to go align a whole bunch of fly embryos on a little cover slip and then just one by one take like a little glass needle filled with um, just some water and my and my vector of interest that contains that mistranslating tRNA and just inject it into the backs of all of those embryos hundreds of times until I get enough survivors that it might contain the transgene of interest. And they have some genetic elements in there that make sure that that vector I put in can get put into the exact same spot in the genome every time, which is really cool. Yeah. And that controls for some positional effects and makes sure that when they enter, they're not messing up some important gene, which could affect my results. Okay. And then once I grow them up and they have what they're supposed to have, then I can just start testing from there. So I got a couple questions. Myself being a developmental biologist, <laughs> I'm curious... At what point, like at what stage in terms of their embryogenesis, are, are you like injecting them? Like, are you putting them at like probably not the one cell stage? Like you're talking so about there's going to be very, very early. As soon as physically possible, because yeah. uh, fly embryos, they have something called a syncytial stage. And that means that there's no barriers between the different nuclei of the dividing embryo. Hmm. And that's really important because what I really want to do is I want to make sure that my construct, my vector, gets into the germline, what's going to become the germline of the fly. And that means that my construct can be passed on to the next generation mm -hmm. because the germline becomes the sperm or egg and that's what will allow it to happen. So if I integrate it into some somatic tissue, like what will become muscle tissue, for example, it's not going to help me because it won't be passed on to the next generation. Yeah. So it has to be very, very early while yeah. it's still syncytial. And that, that was actually like my next question. <laughs> and then I had a follow up to that one. Like, do you know, is it going to be in every cell? Because like you're saying that you're it's integrating into the the DNA like the the host DNA and it's at a, such an early like stage that the nuclei are just together so at that stage there it will be a mosaic which means that both there are some cells that contain the construct and there are okay. some cells that don't which is why I need it in the germline because that will allow me to so then the, the sperm so or using, eggs produced by it I use the next generation exactly ah, okay. because every cell of their of their like son or daughter will contain that mistranslated tRNA okay and with flies like they just reproduce so quickly that it's not yeah, it doesn't exactly. take a huge amount of time like myself I use mice so it would take a, quite a long time oh right? yeah that, that's one of the big it's, mice are amazing if you want some human analogs you've got to go with mice but yeah. flies a full generation is about two weeks which means you can get this project <laughs> done so much faster <laughs> that's a dream yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very quick um, um, sorry, I might be getting ahead of myself here, but what type of um, like phenotypic changes do you see? Some really, doing? really cool stuff. So one of the most striking phenotypes that I wasn't expecting at all was that the flies that contain... So I put in three different types of tRNAs. One that's totally normal as my control. One that mistranslates at a very low rate, which is a weak mistranslator. And one that mistranslates at a very high rate, so a strong mistranslator. And I noticed that my strong mistranslator had a ton of morphological defects. Like they were missing legs, they were missing <laughs> wings, they had like fluid filled blisters in their legs or like you see like blackened stumps where their like some of their limbs should be. In some cases, their thorax, which is you can sort of think of as the chest, like their version of their chest. It was kind of like cut in half and fused basically like armpit to hip. Like they have these really, really intense deformities. And so that's one of like the most striking things that I found is that it really can affect the overall development of the adult fly into what into their physical characteristics. And what's really interesting is when I started to look at it, female flies were disproportionately more affected than male flies. So females had about twice the rate of these deformities than the males did, which is which suggests that females are less able to talk to tolerate these uh, protein stresses. Do you know why that might be? It's still a little bit 
hard to say at this stage. Okay. So there's two possible things that we can think of. First of all, um, females just have a different genetic makeup. So they have two copies of the X chromosome versus just one in males. And like the males, of course, also have the Y. So it could be that there's a genetic background thing that's going on that we're seeing only in females. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's probably more likely in my eyes is that in fruit flies, females are larger and they develop faster. So female adults appear before male adults. So it could be that there's just less room for mistakes because not only do they need more proteins, but they need them sooner. So if you have these errors with males, they might have the time to correct it or remove those bad proteins to replace them with good proteins. But with females, they may not have that luxury. So it could be that that's why they're more disproportionately affected. This may be a silly question, but you said that this vector it incorporates into the genome. Mm -hmm. So is it possible that maybe just it incorporated into an X chromosome? So or, or do you have like multiple different fly lines that you've essentially have and they all show this or most majority of them. really great about the technique that I used so it's called phi C31 phi C31 integrase okay it recognizes a specific point in the genome a specific trait and always integrates the vector right there okay never randomly gotcha so what we can do is we can put that special marker where we want it and yeah. then which we've done in the which not we've done but other labs have done in the past and then we know that, okay, yes, this is on chromosome two, and you integrate it, and it's always going to be in chromosome two because this technique always hmm. looks for that marker before it puts it in. So and I've this is not it. like a, a female chromosome. Like it's no, no, just no, it's regular. not. It's, um, That's fascinating. Yeah, autosome, hmm. which means it's not sex chromosome based. No way. Well, thank you so much for coming in. It's a pleasure having you here. And I know you're going to be coming on the show uh, in like about a month or so. So if anybody wants to learn more, uh, come back and uh, tune into his next episode. Yeah, stay tuned. Can't wait to say more. Thanks, Josh. Hello and welcome back to GradCast. This is your host, Gregory Robinson. And I'm your co-host, Joyla Ferlano, and we are joined by Vonica Fleer. Welcome, Vonica. Hi. So you are a second-year master's student in the bio uh, department as well, is yep. that correct? Yeah. Um, and you're also presenting at the Bio Graduate Research Forum, yep. correct? And that was today? Yeah. Great. Today. And you did an oral talk? Yeah. And how was it? It was pretty good, I think. I, it was amazing. <laughs> oh, you were there I, for I it? I was there. Yeah, oh, Greg great. watched it. It was, uh, yeah, I had to rush through a bit because there's a lot of background that has to be explained for my project, but I think I got through everything okay. Great. Okay, so why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about what you research? So um, it's a bit complicated, but basically, if I wanted to say really broadly, um, if you look at things like ants, bees, wasps, and termites, um, they're eusocial insects, so you've got workers that don't have offspring and you have queens that do have offspring um, and the workers sort of help the queens have more babies basically and that's something called reproductive altruism it's a behavior that's um, a bit complicated uh, and my work involves sort of mathematically modeling how that behavior evolves how exactly do you do you model this like what is this based upon previous research? Are you starting fresh or like what? Uh... Yeah, so um, so there's a previous researcher uh, named W.D. Hamilton and he uh, created this sort of mathematical inequality that says genes that cause altruism to happen um, can evolve when a fitness benefit conveyed from something like a worker to a queen is high enough so they're giving enough help um, and then the cost that the altruist is experiencing isn't too low so workers aren't you know losing too much fitness or what have you um, and then both individuals have to be related to some degree so my models take that inequality and extrapolate on it based on other details that uh, I want to study. Okay. So like my under sort of understanding was when we're talking about fitness, like that's like generally your own offspring, like the likelihood that you're going to have offspring. But you're saying if they're being altruistic, like 
somebody like you're somebody related to you you're like helping them and not yourself you're not actually like producing offspring but helping them helps them produce offspring is that what you're trying to get at yeah so it would basically be like instead of having my own offspring i'd be helping my sister have more babies and if i didn't help her she would just have two for example um but because i'm helping her for she i don't know maybe i'm feeding them more or something she manages to have like four or five or six okay um and the relatedness is just a measure of how um likely it's, it's sort of like a a probability that we both share the same genes from a common ancestor. So is it possible then that like the workers actually sacrifice them like their yeah. own health or well-being per se? Yeah, so that's that's pretty much exactly what altruism is. It's it's you'll see ants, you know, fighting off crazy predators and just dying for their colony or um, you know, doing basically any action where they're not um, everything that they do is basically them investing energy in helping the queen produce more offspring than them having their own offspring. Most eusocial species, the workers don't have offspring at all. Um, but there's exceptions depending on the species, of course. Yeah, I was going to ask that. So is it typically just like, so I don't know much about like these types of insects, but is it typically just the queens that would then reproduce? So they would be um, the non-altruistic ones? Yeah, generally the, it's just the queens and uh, what would be called you know, commonly called kings or drones is technically it's the male. Um, so that they would be called essentially egoists. So they are the opposite of an altruist. They're selfish. They have as many offspring as they can. Okay. And so what are you currently working on then? Like, where are you with your research with this? So my work is pretty much entirely theoretical. I don't actually work with any specific species. Um, I'm trying to build a very general model that covers um, what's called conditional expression. So the genes that cause an individual to become or behave as an altruist versus an egoist, um, they can't always, you can't always express altruism, um, have, the, have these genes expressed. These genes can't be expressed unconditionally, basically. You can't have an individual always behaving in as, as an altruist when they have these genes. Otherwise, there's nobody around to have babies to have these genes and pass them on in the next mm -hmm. generation. So queens possess the same genes, essentially, as workers do. They're not identical, but the genotype, the uh, genome is essentially the same. They're just expressing the genes differently to turn them into queens versus workers. So that's what's that's what conditional um, expression is. It's like an on-off switch where, um, you know, there's some sort of environmental trigger that causes an individual to turn into either a queen or a worker. My my work is essentially just mathematically modeling that sort of on-off switch, and figuring out, you know, how good do these individuals have to be at you know, taking in this environmental trigger? Do, do they have to be really perfect at it? Do they have to always make the right decision? Or can they mess up sometimes? How socially responsive do they have to be is essentially what it what it boils down to. So like, if we're talking about bees, let's <laughs> say, so like these bees can then, they're able to like recognize if somebody has similar genes or like has that altruistic gene per se. And because of that, they then behave altruistically. But sometimes that doesn't, they, They'll recognize somebody and think that they have these same genes, but they actually don't. Sort of. So that that's basically how my model is built. It's based on just simple social recognition. Um, but in current eusocial systems, it's much more advanced than that because they've had you know millions of years yeah. to develop other mechanisms. So, for example, in honeybees, the quote-unquote environmental trigger is actually um, the larvae is fed something con called royal jelly. And if a worker, or sorry, a larvae is fed royal jelly for, uh, I believe it's about three days or less, then they tend to generally turn into a worker. So their genes are expressed in a way that cause the individual to develop into a worker. Um, but if they are fed royal jelly for longer than that, then they actually end up developing into a queen. So that is the environmental trigger that stimulates okay. the expression. 
What is royal jelly? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sounds delicious. It sounds though. fancy. That's my bad. It's, it's essentially a, yeah. I should have explained that. That's essentially this just this very specific kind of uh, honey that is. It, it really differs in terms of the makeup of what's in the honey compared to just the regular honey you'll get from a bee. So um, when you're speaking of like how long they're fed this, mm-hmm. you, is this just like a natural process or how does this work? Like what determines how long they're being fed? The workers themselves. So oh, workers okay. are workers take care of these larvae, right? Um, and so workers will come along and feed their uh, the larvae a certain amount of royal jelly. Mm. And there's a lot of stipulation here about you know, maybe there's a genetic mechanism for how um, how much these workers feed the larvae royal jelly. Maybe there's um, the the workers. There's some sort of genes underlying that decision as well, but it hasn't really been explored yet. So <laughs> okay. And so, what have you been able to kind of learn so far in your PhD? Uh, masters. Oh, masters. Sorry. <laughs> That's sorry. okay. Um, so, I mean, I'm still in the the early stages of the model, unfortunately, because it's really complicated. Yeah, I, I don't have a math it. background, so it's taken a long time for me to get as far as I do. I'm still working with a hypothetical haploid species, but um, what I've rec- what I've found so far is there's this interesting, very clear relationship between a uh, level of social responsiveness and the um, variables involved in Hamilton's rule, um, and you can actually create an equation relating the two. And you also find that if individuals um, recognize their social environment 50% of the time or less, these genes can't evolve. There has to be a greater than 50% rate of social responsiveness in order for these genes to survive. Interesting. Yeah. And sorry, uh, what's Hamilton's rule? I'm asking very basic questions here. I don't have a strong. Sorry, so that in this. that that was the um, the work of W. D. Hamilton when he was talking when I was talking about his work earlier. He he created this um, the inequality I mentioned earlier, where individuals have to um, convey a certain minimum benefit and experience a certain um, maximum cost. Gotcha. So basically, if you write it out on paper, it literally just reads as R times B must be greater than C okay. in order for these genes to increase in frequency. And so why is it important to develop this mathematical model for this? So a lot of this work is really illuminating um, how different um, traits can evolve. So, you know, typical Darwinian concepts of how evolution works is just survival of the fittest, so the strongest survive. But we're learning slowly um, through studies about kin selection and that sort of thing that we can actually evolve indirectly through our relatives. So in helping, you know, relatives survive somehow or another through some indirect action, you're actually increasing the output of your genes, but not through your own fitness. So there may be genes that cause one individual to not have babies, but that doesn't mean it's not um, an effective uh strategy for survival. And this might be a naive question, but can what you're doing um, in these insects be applied to humans somehow? Uh, yes and no. So my specific models, probably not. But but the, the whole goal here is all of these models developed by, by Hamilton, by myself, by, by other workers in this field are helping us understand how various uh, kin selection and other um, more complex ways for evolution to occur happen like how does this work and how do these different you know variables interact and it's mostly uh helping us to just gain a broader understanding of these concepts and not necessarily um, applying the specific models and equations so while no i can't i generally apply my specific model to humans Mm -hmm. it does help us understand this evolutionary process so that we can understand how humans interact and how our genes uh influence our behaviors as well so now there's there isn't really like any genes out there that we know about 
that are responsible for altruistic behavior, right? As far as we're aware, at least maybe in bees or, or something, uh, but based on my own my understanding, anyway, I I haven't we haven't really found any specific genes that underlie altruism as a whole. But yeah. there there have been genes that have been identified that isolate specific aspects of altruism. So um, genes that allow an individual to recognize certain pheromones, and that will cause them to develop ovaries or not. Okay. Um, stuff like that. So there's there are genes that are being identified in slowly over time. And so maybe it's like a bigger picture that a bunch of these different genes uh, will then determine if they're going to act altruistically, essentially. Yeah, right. exactly. And and that's kind of the, the broad idea. And that's kind of the beauty of what I love about my project is my model is actually developed in a way that can apply not just to a specific gene, but a, uh, a range of highly linked genes. So, you know, this model could be applied to a group of tightly linked genes that influence different aspects of altruism, um, because when genes are highly linked, they tend to be inherited the exact same way as a single gene would. Okay. And you said this was a this was like a simplistic model because I forget what your wording was it's, for. Sorry, it's, it's simplistic in the sense that, um, so it's haploid. And what that means is the organisms I am modeling, they're, they're just kind of hypothetical. They're not yeah. real animals. Um, and I am designating them to be haploid, which means they only have one copy of each gene. Um, right. So okay. we have two copies of each gene in our yeah. bodies. Um, so what would be the next step in your modeling? Like what, what could you change in the model to make it a little more complex, maybe a little more true to how it would occur in nature? Well, certainly adding diploidy would be important. If I could develop the model further so that they do have two copies of each gene, that would reflect a lot of current eusocial insects. So a lot of insect, eusocial insects in um, the hymenopterans, they are haplodiploid, which means females are uh, have two copies of each gene, males only have one, but then there's other organisms like termites and they have, they're diploid. So if I can involve diploidy into the model, that would be great. Um, it would also be great to play with different uh, other specific behaviors that might be involved in altruism, but that's takes a very long time to mm -hmm. add more details to the model, so I'm working on it. Yeah. Um, and so before we wrap up, I was really just interested in knowing how you got into this research and what, what, why, why was it so interesting for you? So I've always thought evolution itself was really fascinating. Um, I've always been really into, you know, biology in general. I was crazy about dinosaurs when I was a kid. And then, you know, in my undergrad, I was actually working in a paleontology lab. But then we had the chair of our department, or the, the dean actually, um, Dr. David McCorkadale. He came in and did a talk on his current research where he was studying pre-eusocial vespid wasps. So they were just starting to almost behave like eusocial insects um, and how what he's learning about these insects as a result of his experiments. And that just blew my mind away. It was great. It was like this big gaping hole in evolutionary theory that we are still trying to figure out. And I love it. It's like this, this, uh, I don't know, it's like a riddle that we haven't solved yet. And evolution in general is just really interesting because it's just learning how life works in general. So getting to work specifically on evolutionary theory and it's about you social insects is like my dream. <laughs> That's awesome. It's definitely an exciting field. Yeah, it's super fun. Well, thank you so much for coming on GradCast. Um, is there, if somebody wants to learn more about your research, could they follow you on social media? Or? Yeah, so I um, I actually have a ResearchGate uh, account. I am, I mean, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and the whole shebang, but um, they can also email me at vfleer at uwo.ca. I love talking about my work, so I'm open for any questions anyone has. Well, thank you so much, Monica. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Gregory Robinson, and my co-host was Joyla Ferlano. We've been speaking with Vonica Fleer. 
This episode was also produced by myself. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m., as well as every Thursday, every other Thursday, pardon me, at 1.30 p.m. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.